president of Lincoln College at Lincoln, Illinois. He is one of our old-time members. When I asked him what I should say about him tonight, he could say very little. And then I started to tell him what I thought I should say, and he said, my God, don't say that. You'll be giving my speech. So in deference to the wishes of the speaker, I will introduce him at present, very briefly, Raymond Dooley. <laughs> President Seymour and gentlemen of the round table, it certainly is a pleasure for me to be here tonight. You know, there was a time in the history of American education when the president of a small college was supposed to be the foremost scholar. That is no longer true at all. He is now a man of many cloaks and many faces. He's a salesman. He's something of a mountebank. At times, he has to draw on the cloak of piety. At other times, he's a good time Charlie. But there's one thing he must never fail to do, which I'd like to illustrate with just a little story. There was a man who was a very strong man performing his act in front of the sideshow at a county fair. He was a burly fellow. He'd raise great weights like that, and he took a telephone directory of Chicago and tore it in his hands like that. And his last act in the climax of it was picked up a grapefruit, and he twisted it like that in half, and in his great hammy hands, he squeezed it like that, and he threw it out and said, now, if there's any man in the audience that can get so much as one drop more juice out of that grapefruit, I'll pay him $10 a drop. And the manager said, that's right, we will. An innocent-looking little man walked up in a dark suit, sort of shabby, picked up the grapefruit and squeezed out of it a teaspoonful from each one. He took his money, and finally the manager said, brother, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm the head of a small college down the road, and I squeeze a nickel out of anything I can. <laughs> Seriously, I consider it a very high privilege to be your speaker, particularly since this is the Lincoln Birthday Month. We've had advanced billing on this subject in the Chicago Tribune. If you've read Morrow's column, you know my speech. If you haven't, maybe you would care to listen to it more closely. Travelers starting in Chicagoland, the headwaters of Highway 66, vast flow of motorized travel from Lake Michigan to the Pacific Ocean, who continues some 160 miles, will come to a certain divide in the road marked by a sign reading, Lincoln, Illinois. Prior to a recent tornado, this sign would have been preceded by a large billboard which carried the name Lincoln, Illinois, written in letters imitating a split rail. Under this, there appeared a fairly realistic sign painter's portrait of the great emancipator with a further legend first town to be named for Abraham Lincoln, an only town named for him before he became famous, christened by him August 29th, 1853, by pouring the juice of a watermelon on the ground. Now, thousands of hurrying travelers now pause only for a moment. When they see the sign, Springfield to the right, they go on without stopping. A more leisurely traveler, however, on old Route 66, will pass through a pleasant Midwestern city of approximately 14,000 persons. It will not differ in appearance from hundreds of other substantial communities located in the Mississippi Valley. If the traveler is especially well informed, he may know that he will be driving not only through the first town to be named for Lincoln, but the first college to be named for Lincoln, and the only one of either so named in his lifetime. He may realize that he is passing within a few hundred feet of the site of a home in which Lincoln spent many happy hours visiting his friend Robert Latham. He may know that he will pass the site of one of the earliest courthouses, Postville, in which Lincoln practiced law as a circuit rider. And he may realize that this county seat town was organized in the Springfield office of Lincoln and Herndon, and that Logan County itself was organized by a legislative group of which Lincoln was the leader when Sangamon County was broken up in 1839. 
It is my purpose this evening to discuss some of the relationships of Lincoln to this typical pioneering community which lies so close to his three Illinois homes, the farm near Decatur, New Salem, and Springfield. The history of Logan County and the history of Abraham Lincoln impinge upon each other where they do not run in parallel grooves. The history of Logan County could not be written without frequent references to Lincoln's life, not any more than could the history of Springfield or the state of Illinois or the nation or even the world. He was Logan County's surveyor, he was Logan County's friend, he was Logan County's lawyer. In 1818, when Illinois was admitted to the Union as a sovereign state, there was not a single white inhabitant in the confines of that 25-acre square, which is now known as Logan County. The first white settlement in the Logan County was made in the year 1819. In the spring of that year, James Latham and family moved from Kentucky, and they settled Elkhart Hill, which is a prominence of land and the only one existing between Springfield and Lincoln, about 16 miles southwest of Lincoln. By 1831, however, when Abraham Lincoln came to Sangamon County, of which Logan County was then a part, the population had so increased that a movement for division of the county had arisen. Now this demand was created, of course, by the fact that their travel conditions were poor. It's the exact opposite condition which we have today, the condition which makes our county units so archaic because of their small size. A division of Sangamon County was, however, bitterly resisted in and around Springfield, as might be expected. Advocates of the division, however, in 1832, were among the group which put Lincoln up for the legislature. New Salem was to be the county seat of one of the new counties, Menard, which was carved out of Sangamon. And in the campaign that followed, of course, Lincoln received substantially the entire vote of the northwest part of the then Sangamon County. However, he was defeated because of the vote around Springfield. By 1838, the county division movement came again to the front with redoubled enthusiasm, and Sangamon County was too large, the county seat was too remote, and there were enough settlers who complained of this situation to change the condition. Abraham Lincoln then, of course, was in the legislature. He was a member of the Committee on Counties of the House of Representatives, and on June 16, 1839, we have the following record. Abraham Lincoln, from the Committee on Counties, to whom certain petitions were referred, reported a bill for an act to establish the counties of Menard, Logan, and Dane, which was read twice, and on motion of John Calhoun, was referred to a select committee of five. Lincoln was on this committee. On January 18th, the select committee reported the bill back with certain amendments which were adopted and the bill was ordered for a third reading. It became law on February 5th, 1839. Now, Logan County was named by Abraham Lincoln in honor of his friend, Dr. John Logan, father of the famous soldier and statesman, General John A. Logan, and not for his law partner, as is sometimes thought. In the 10th General Assembly, despite the fact that Dr. Logan was a Democrat in politics, he and Abraham Lincoln became close friends when in the subsequent session, Logan County was carved out of Sangamon, no name having been suggested by the settlers inhabiting the new county, Lincoln suggested the name of his old friend Logan, then a member of the House, and the name was adopted. So thus, Lincoln became the true legislative parent of this present political unit in the state of Illinois. Much misinformation prevails currently about Abraham Lincoln and his surveying activities. In Lincoln, I have heard it said, in all good faith, that Abraham Lincoln surveyed the town of Lincoln and or that he surveyed the old settlement of Postville. This is mere fancy, as he did neither. A similar legend exists that Lincoln helped dedicate the cornerstone of University Hall at Lincoln College. Now, this is unlikely, as the building was started in the fall of 1865, when Lincoln had been dead several months. However, there is truth in the story that Lincoln laid out a town in Logan County. When he was surveyor under Calhoun, 
in the year 1836. He came to Rocky Ford, which is a little ford across Salt Creek, about 12 miles south and to the west of the present site of Lincoln. It was a time of the town lot craze, and two individuals, John Wright and John Donovan, thought Rocky Ford would be an ideal site. So on June 16, 1836, Lincoln came with his instruments and laid out the proposed town. It was called Albany, but it never boasted a population, though some of the lots actually were sold. You will find on the records of Logan County a rudely drawn plot of this forgotten town, and underneath it these words, I hereby certify that this is a correct map of the town of Albany, as surveyed by me, Abraham Lincoln, for T.W. Neal, SSC. A facsimile of this map of Albany appears in Tarbell's Early Life of Lincoln. The proposed town consisted of seven city blocks and a public square. The three principal streets were named in plebeian fashion, first, second, and third, but there appeared a kind of a deviation, a little more inspiration, and the main street was called Meridian. The a first map of Logan County is in the possession of Lincoln College in our Lincoln collection. It was a map drawn in 1839 by I.S. Britton. Now you may identify Britton as being the man that is referred to in the Herndon copy of Lincoln in a letter which is quoted in part. We are not real estate men, we are lawyers. We recommend that you give the charge of it to Mr. Isaac S. Britton, a trustworthy man, and one whom the Lord made on purpose for such business. On Sunday, June 24, 1951, the late Mr. D.F. Nichols of Lincoln, Illinois, active Lincoln collector and co-author of the work on Menor Graham, former vice president of our State Historical Society, gave me the following account of the courthouse in Postville. Now, according to him, the town of Postville, which is on a site about a mile west of the present courthouse of Lincoln, was established by Lewis Post in the year 1836, which was three years before the establishment of Logan from Sangamon County. After the county had been established, the old courthouse was erected in 1840 through the cooperation of all the settlers. They pitched in and donated labor and money and everything to create this building, which for its time was quite impressive. Lincoln practiced in and out of that building for the next eight years while it served as the courthouse for Logan County. Now, the story of this building is to me a very sad chronicle, but one which is somewhat typical. Immediately after the removal of the county seat to Mount Pulaski, the courthouse became a post office for the community and a country store. Many years later, much later in the century, this became a tenement house. It was divided into two apartment buildings. It was first inhabited by white families and later by Negro families. The buildings and grounds were eventually purchased by one of Lincoln, Illinois' leading lawyers, Mr. Timothy Beach. Mr. Nichols said that it was bought by Mr. Beach with the intention of donating it to the county. And Mr. Beach indeed offered it to Logan County Supervisors as a memorial if they would keep it up. The Board of Supervisors refused his offer for the reasons of economy. And in later years, just before his death in 1920, lawyer Beach met with financial reverses and left his widow in, in straightened financial circumstances. The local Abraham Lincoln chapter of the DAR went to her and asked her if they could have the building and preserve it as a memorial, and she said she could no longer give the building to anybody that she had to keep it for sale in order to obtain value as real estate. It was said by Mr. Nichols that when Henry Ford wanted a building for Dearborn Village, he wanted a building in which it was absolutely authentic that Abraham Lincoln had practiced law. Now then, the post-built courthouse was a frame structure. It had fallen into disrepair. It would be easily removed, and it was available. So it was the natural selection for Mr. Ford to put this building in his Dearborn village. And on the word of Mr. Nichols, I have 
related here, a meeting which occurred on Labor Day, 1929, in the Commercial Hotel in Lincoln, which I consider to be rather interesting. He said, and I quote, I was called by Mr. David Clark, who was then mayor of Lincoln, who said, Professor Nichols, I understand that Henry Ford is in town. He says he wants to buy the old courthouse, and I thought you and Judge Stringer and I ought to talk with him about it. He's now at the Commercial Hotel, and I wish that you and the judge would come down and meet with me to talk with him. Judge Lawrence B. Stringer is the author of the History of Logan County, which I assure you is one of the best local histories of its kind. Mr. Nichols went on to say, even though it was a holiday, I hurried down as fast as I could, but I first called the judge. He was in the process of dressing to go on an excursion, but he said he would change his plans, and as soon as he completed his toilet, would meet me in the commercial hotel. There we met Mr. Ford, who was in the lobby talking to Mr. Clark. And since Mr. Ford's presence had become known in the town, quite a number of people gathered around. It became too crowded for us to talk on the first floor. We decided to go to the parlor on the second floor. Mr. Ford led the procession by bounding up the stairs three steps at a time. He was then nearing 70. Judge Stringer said, Mr. Ford, how can you go up the stairs so rapidly at your age? And Ford replied, I always go up the stairs that way to get my exercise. Nichols said, I asked Mr. Ford, why not leave the Postville Courthouse on its original foundation and restore it here as a museum? And Ford replied, oh, there'll be so many more people see it when I put it in Dearborn Village. I said again, well, Mr. Ford, Route 66 passes right beside this site. And a million people a year will pass here and see it, and many of them will stop and enjoy this historic shrine. But I did not know at that time that Mr. Ford had the deed in his pocket. Further urging on our part failed to move Ford in his decision, and the Postville Courthouse was dismantled and transferred to a site in Greenfield Village. Of this group which met on that day in 1929, the late Mr. Nichols was the last to survive, and he said, my final comment to Ford was, well, now you're taking our Lincoln building away. Won't you do something for the town of Lincoln? the first one to be named in his honor. Nichols said, Ford promised to take it under advisement, which is a classic evasion we so often hear. Nichols had this comment to say on the technique of removing the courthouse. He said it was dismantled so carefully that every item was numbered and complete charts were made so that the reconstruction could be as nearly perfect in every detail as possible. Even the plaster on the walls was pulverized and placed in numbered bags and returned to the walls of the same rooms when it was re-erected in Greenfield. The building was constructed of hickory lath with walnut weatherboarding, and Nichols said that the estimated purchase price which Ford paid was only $8,000. Following the removal of the building, Ford erected a high steel fence around the plot of ground. You understand that the plot of ground on which it stood was the original post bill square, which had never had other buildings on it. And as time went by, the lot was neglected, and people began to complain to the mayor of Lincoln, who in turn wrote to Ford voicing the complaints that had been expressed. Now, this letter was neglected, was not answered, and was finally followed by a request from the city clerk asking for the weeds to be removed. These two communications apparently annoyed Ford. He sold the land to a real estate man whose name was Ranny. Unfortunately, I've been unable to find his first initials. Ranny held it for several years, and during the spring of 1946, Mr. D.F. Nichols' son, who told me these facts, was in Detroit. He contacted Ranny and got a 30-day option. A group of citizens in Lincoln bought the ground under a form of trusteeship. They now hold it, and it is in the process of being transferred to the Logan County Historical <coughs> Society, which is incorporating for the purpose of holding property. Now, the original selection of Postville was never a very popular decision for the county seat, because in the early settlement of Logan County, most of the population was in the southeast corner. 
The majority of inhabitants had come up there and were eager to have the county seat in Mount Pulaski, which was much closer, or at least by about 12 miles. So on the first Monday of April, 1847, the efforts to move the county seat were successful, and an election was held, and it was moved to Mount Pulaski. The legislature said, the proprietors of the town of Mount Pulaski shall be required to erect a good and sufficient courthouse for the use of the county. And the historic Mount Pulaski Courthouse was then erected in 1848 and remains as a state park today. In many ways, this is a more historic building, of course, than Postville. Lincoln and other no more notables were there oftener, and the building is a far more impressive physical structure, being two stories of brick and a very handsome piece of architecture indeed. I'm sure m many of you here are quite familiar with it. However, there's an interesting fact. Until 1929, there was the courthouse at Postville on its own original foundation in exactly the same location, not exactly in the same state of repair. There was the courthouse at Mount Pulaski. But Logan County has other distinctions, which I should like to point out in the way of courthouses in which Lincoln practiced. The fact that the county seat traveled back and forth is important in this regard because he practiced in Postville. Then he practiced in Mount Pulaski. And to anticipate the story a little bit, when Logan County seat moved to Lincoln, a courthouse was erected there. This courthouse was erected in 1854 in the county seat of Lincoln. On April 15, 1857, unfortunately, the building burned. And it is very, a very sad fact to Logan County that the records, practically all of the records as kept up to that date, which involved many of the early records connected with Lincoln, were burned during this time. The court moved to the first church, which is now on the site of the present First Christian Church, and it's on the southwest corner of what's called Latham Park. And it's interesting to note that Lincoln acted as a judge for one day. The presiding judge was unable to attend, and he was elected by the lawyers in that session as judge. And I think you'd like to know that just this week, Harry Pratt has been investigating in the Logan County records, and I have heard, though not directly from him, but from the county judge, that he found 52 new entries that had not been known that were in Lincoln's handwriting at that time. These are being impounded, of course, and will be photostatted and put in the library in Springfield. But now, in addition to that, the three courthouses so mentioned, the church, then when the courthouse that was the second one for the town of Lincoln, or the fourth courthouse in Logan County, became the fifth edifice in which Lincoln practiced law in Logan County. And while I don't know that this is true, I suspect that that's more buildings than any other county that had Lincoln as a practicing lawyer. It's also interesting to note in regard to Lincoln's law career that when the court was moved from Postville to Pulaski, the proprietors who had donated the land for the park and for the erection of the courthouse sued because they felt that there had been a breach of faith. Lincoln was the lawyer for the county. In other words, he resisted this suit, and he got the award in the lower court from Davis, and it was upheld in the Supreme Court. The same thing happened when the courthouse moved from Pulaski. In other words, when it was moved back to Lincoln, the Mount Pulaski proprietors sued and thought that there was bad faith again. Again, the judge decided for Lincoln, again, he having been the county attorney, and again in the Supreme Court, he was upheld. I didn't think that I could bring a new law case, and I didn't want to bring a lot, but here is a little story which was told to me. I said in our announcement that there would be some legend in this, and this is the realm of legend. But there is a lady living in Lincoln now by the name of Mrs. T.M. Pfeiffer, and Mrs. Pfeiffer has the following story, which is taken from a letter given to her by her grandmother. This is in regard to a very early day in the old Postville Courthouse. Court was in session in the then new Postville Courthouse where Mr. Lincoln from Springfield, just admitted to the bar, was to defend a young man arrested for horse stealing. 
The day was exceedingly hot, and after court had been called to order and the preliminaries were over, Lincoln said, boys, let's go out under the shade of that apple tree and try this case, if your honor and the judge will allow. So each took his chair and the clerk his book, and they went out. Now, it was not hard to prove that the young man had taken the horse. He didn't even deny it. And everything pointed plainly to a long term in the penitentiary. There was silence when Lincoln got up to present his case. Your honor, he said, will you permit me to change the usual order a little? Then to the prisoner, he said, young man, you did take the horse, you know. Now stand up and tell the judge how you came to do it. Tell him just what you told me. Rising, the prisoner said, Your Honor, I am not a thief, nor did I intend to steal a horse, but I just received word that my wife was very sick and my little baby, whom I had never seen, was dead. The only way for me to reach them was to get a fast horse and ride to Springfield in time to get on the train to go down to the Illinois River. I had very little money because I was only earning $12 a month. When the man for whom I was working, I knew would not lend me the horse, and I didn't know what to do, but, Your Honor, I had to get home. So after dark, I put a bridle on the horse and started for Springfield Railroad office. When I got nearly there, I took the bridle off the horse, fed and watered him, and started him back to his home. I felt sure he would go home, and I had not hurt him a bit. I then took the train, got home in time to bury my little boy and take care of my wife, who I believe would surely have died if I had not been there. When she got better, we intended to come back here and try to get some land. But before we got started, I was arrested and brought back. You see, Judge, the horse did not go back home, but was taken by someone, and I was charged with stealing him. The boy sat down. Lincoln arose, pled the case. He begged Judge Lacey to find the man and give him a chance to pay for the horse. My grandfather, who was clerk of the court, said that no man with a heart could have refused Mr. Lincoln's appeal, and the judge did not. Her grandfather was the late John T. Jenkins, one of the first clerks of Logan County. With characteristic lack of vanity, Mr. Lincoln was always very modest about this town which was named for him. Many of you have probably read this little excerpt, which I have taken from Henry Clay Whitney, who says, while he was still comparatively obscure, some people attempted to honor him by naming their children after him. And I personally knew this was distasteful to him. I once asked him if the town Lincoln was named after him, as indeed it was. Well, he replied, I believe it was named after I was. In 1852, the old Alton and Sangamon Railroad was completed from Alton to Springfield, and early in 1853, plans were made to extend this road through Logan and McLean counties to Bloomington and eventually on to Chicago. The line of direction that the road would take from Springfield to Chicago indicated that a new station was needed in the central area of Logan County. That is a station which would not have been available with the present towns existing in the county. And so in the spirit of adventure, which is characteristic of that time, Three men organized themselves as proprietors to promote this new town. The first of these was Colonel Robert Latham, the youngest son of James Latham, the first settler of the town. He was the foremost political figure of the county. He'd served as sheriff and has been active in all its business and political affairs that marked the growth of the county. Virgil Hickox of Springfield was the second proprietor. He was a strong Democrat, and he had charge of much of the construction of the right-of-way of the railroad, ultimately clear up to Joliet. He was a director of the road, and he provided much of the inside information that would have been necessary. The third proprietor was John D. Gillette. He was the principal capitalist of this new county. He was a great cattle raiser. In fact, it's said that he actually shipped more cattle than any other single individual to England, and he had under his control men who would take cattle from Elkhart, Illinois, directly to the English markets with their ships. Robert Latham, 
was engaged to secure the right of way, so he had the inside information as to just exactly where the road would travel. So he was directed by these other two proprietors to actually locate the town, which he did, by making a journey to Philadelphia and acquiring the key piece of land, which was an 80 acres of land that now comprises the actual town of Lincoln. This 80 acres of land was bought from a man by the name of Isaac Luce, who had held it for several years and had actually didn't have much to do with it. He was a typical absentee landlord of the time. Now in the naming, after the title of the land had been secured and they had gone through the legal work involved, there came a day, which was August 26, 1853, when they went down to the law office of Lincoln and Herndon and they attempt to draw up a power of attorney. Now this power of attorney was to give Robert Latham the power to act in selling the lots which they had laid out in this new town from the 80 acres of land which they had bought jointly. Now there's been so much said about the naming of the town, I'm sure that my remarks will be somewhat anticlimactic, but this is the legend in its most original form as I have heard it. The authorization for the legend is the word of Colonel Latham himself, as reported before his death to the late Judge Stringer, the author of the Logan County History. As related by Stringer, he says, the paper giving Latham a power of attorney to go ahead with this sale of lots had been prepared before the meeting with Lincoln in his law office. It was prepared in such a way that the space for the name of the town was left vacant. And according to the legend, when Lincoln discovered this, he said, boys, it's time for you to name your town. They hesitated a moment, and Colonel Latham is supposed to have said, why not name it after Abe? The others nodded in agreement, and Mr. Lincoln is said to have responded. You'd better not do that, for I never knew anything named Lincoln that amounted to much. However, the name was then and there agreed upon and was incorporated into this power of attorney where it appears in three places. The original paper, the legal document, which was then finally prepared, is now in the Lincoln Room collection. And I must give credit to Ralph Newman, who got it for Lincoln College. This was sold, I think, about 20 years ago by the Latham Estate. Mr. Will Latham acquired the paper from his father, Colonel Robert Latham, sold it, and in turn, Ralph Newman got it for us. Now, there's a further legend regarding this paper, which many people in Lincoln believe, and that is that in the vacant spaces where the word Lincoln was written in, that this was written in in the handwriting of Mr. Lincoln himself. An examination of the document by people who are supposed to know Lincoln's handwriting, I think, tends to invalidate that legend. The sketch is rather interesting. It's about 15 by 18 inches in measurement. On one side is a plot of the future town of Lincoln. There's the surveyor's report signed by Conway Pence. On the other side is the power of attorney, and there's a <laughs> recorder's report, and there is also a uh, justice of the peace certifying it. We come to the next part of the legend. The sale of the lots for the new town was held August 29, 1853. Mr. Lincoln was present in the new town for that occasion. At the noon hour, he went to a temporary street stand. You see, there was nothing out there in this prairie. There was no restaurant or anything. There were a big crowd of people. So some enterprising person had an eating stand. He bought two watermelons, and he carried them under his arm to the square, and he invited Latham, Gillette, and Hickox to help him dispose of them with the remark, now we'll christen the new town. He then broke the watermelons and poured some of the juice on the ground. The men sat on a pile of lumber, which has been ever since the site of a lumber yard, and they proceeded to eat the melons. In other words, the christening was an inadvertent act. It was not something which Lincoln thought of. It was just that he needed something to eat, and they got the watermelons, and he, with his ready wit, he poured some on the ground. Lincoln, in 1853, was not entirely unknown to fame. He was a Whig leader. He'd been a leader for three of his four terms in the General Assembly. He'd been instrumental in locating the Capitol at Springfield. 
He had served in Congress. He had been conspicuous, at least, as an opponent of the Mexican War, and he was a well-known lawyer throughout half the state. He was a lawyer for the county, and it's the litigation. He was a friend of these proprietors, and it seems to me that there isn't any reason to wonder why they named the town for him. This, of course, was seven years before he was president. In 1853, the legislature moved the county seat to Lincoln, and the voters of the town made it the county seat, so that Lincoln is the father of the town legally and, of course, spiritually for having given his name. Hurry along a little bit. I want to talk about the lot. Anybody who has read the personal finances of Abraham Lincoln by Harry Pratt knows that contrary to at least popular opinion, Lincoln owned several tracts of land at various times in his life. And one of these, which he owned for a considerable period of time and held after his death by his family, was Lot 3 in what is Block 19, located in the southwest square of the town of Lincoln, Illinois. He acquired this property through an inability to say no to a borrower. At the original sale of lots in 53, this lot was sold to Thomas Clark of Springfield, who resold it February 14, 1857, to a well-known early settler. Prim finally found himself overloaded with real estate, and he went to New York in 1857 for the purpose of negotiating a loan for these western lands. While he was in New York, he needed some ready money. He sought $400 from the Illinois governor, Joel Matson, who was also in New York at the time. Matson refused, but suggested that he might get it from Lincoln. Lincoln was also in New York. The purpose for his visit was to collect the $5,000 fee from the Illinois Central Railroad. He did go on the note for Prim. When the note became due, however, Prim was not able to take it up, and Lincoln paid the note. Subsequently, on March 11, 1858, Mr. Prim deeded to Mr. Lincoln Lot 3 of Block 19 to reimburse him for payment. Now, Lincoln was still the owner of this lot when he died, and subsequently, in 1874, Mary Lincoln deeded her interest in the lot to her son Robert, who in turn deeded the lot to Captain David H. Hartz of Lincoln, Illinois. We have the original deed in the Lincoln Room at Lincoln College that Prim made to Lincoln. An incident connected with the lot is told by Judge Stringer of Louis Rosenthal, who was the police magistrate of the city of Lincoln, who knew Lincoln very well. Rosenthal said, in 1858, I was deputy sheriff of Logan County, and the sheriff was then the collector of taxes. Lincoln came to the courthouse that year to pay his taxes, and prior to this visit, I had been living near Lincoln's lot. And the lot being unused and vacant, and knowing that Lincoln wouldn't care, I put up a small temporary shed on his lot and stabled a few extra horses for a short time. I never had had an opportunity to tell Lincoln what I'd done, as I had not met him in the meantime. When he came into the sheriff's office to pay his taxes on the lot, he greeted me cordially with his usual custom and stated the object of his visit. While I was preparing the receipt, he happened to look out of the window and discovered the shed on the lot. Say, Rosenthal, he said, isn't that my lot over there? I told him I guessed it was. Well, who put that shed up there, inquired Lincoln. Well, I replied, there's a fellow here in town who had some extra horses and wanted a temporary stable put up the shed, and that fellow's a good friend of yours. Well, that's all right, said Lincoln, but the fellow, whoever he is, ought to pay my taxes. He's getting all the benefit out of the lot, and I get none. Well, I replied, I know that fellow, Mr. Lincoln, and he won't pay a cent. Well, who is he anyway, said Lincoln. You must know, he replied, I'm the fellow. Lincoln looked a second or two, and with a twinkle in his eye, said, hand over the receipt. I guess I'm stuck for it. <laughs> of that receipt book, a page from the receipt book of that very instant is also in the Lincoln room, at the college, which we're very happy to have. It isn't in Lincoln's handwriting, but it does show that he paid the receipt on that day. Subsequently, in the memory of the, memory of the present owner, D.H. Hartz, 
The lot had a kind of a livery stable on it, and after the livery stable was torn down, it became an open-air Nickelodeon theater, which it was from 1915 to 1920. In 1926, they built a modern business building. It now has a commemorative plaque and a business, I think a Kroger store in it at the present time. It's right in the center of the square. I have one other case which I think would be of interesting, a law case, which originated in Logan County, but which Lincoln didn't take until it went to the Supreme Court. It's the case of Dalby versus the then St. Louis, Alton, and Chicago Railroad. Now this Joseph Dalby was a resident of Elkhart, as I understand it. He attempted to buy a ticket at the Elkhart station to go from Elkhart to Lincoln, a distance of about 15 to 16 miles. A ticket agent had run out of tickets from Elkhart to Lincoln, and he didn't want to have to pay the extra four cent fare so the agent gave him a memo to the conductor saying that he was out of tickets and that the man had tried to buy one and therefore he was entitled to go on a regular rate. But what happened was the conductor and the brakeman or the trainman didn't believe him. They uh, tried to force him to pay the fourth cent. He was a very stubborn man. They beat him up and threw him off the train. <laughs> this is Lincoln's instruction to the jury in that case. I think it's very good legal language. If they believe from the evidence that the railroad company advertised that the fare on their road was three cents a mile, provided tickets were procured at their station offices, and they further believe that Elkhart was one of the regular passenger stations on the road where tickets were usually kept and usually sold, that the plaintiff on the 4th of April last, while the office was open at Elkhart and before the time of the car starting, applied for a ticket and was told by the regular agent that he had none on hand, and gave to the plaintiff a memorandum stating that he had applied for tickets, but that he was out of tickets and would not give him any, and that when the conductor applied to the plaintiff for a ticket, the plaintiff tendered to the conductor the fare from Elkhart to Lincoln at the rate of three cents a mile. At the same time, exhibiting to the conductor the memorandum so obtained from the agent at Elkhart, then the plaintiff had a right to pass over the road and the conductor had no right to remove him. And if the jury further believed that the company authorized the conductors of their road to remove all passengers who did not pay four cents a mile when they had not regular tickets, and that in carrying out such direction of the company, the conductor and the brakeman committed an assault upon the plaintiff, the company are responsible for the assault. And he really hung it on the railroad. He got $1,000 for his client, and he established that the railroad was responsible for the acts of its employees. There's another incident which I think is worth relating in connection with Lincoln and the town that was named after him. On September 4th in 1858, between the Freeport and Jonesboro speeches of the Lincoln-Douglas debate, Douglas spoke in Lincoln. I'm quoting now from the uh, Logan County history. A monstrous Douglas demonstration had been arranged for Springfield that evening. Douglas had left Chicago on the morning train, and all along the road, Douglas adherents boarded the train. Lincoln was also on the train, desiring to hear what Douglas would say ready to take advantage of any indiscretions in the way of expressions which Douglas might make, born in the heat of excitement and the adulation and plaudits of his friends. Lincoln was on the lookout for more arguments to use in the five debates yet to take place. In the account of the meeting, which I have here on deposition by a man by the name of Lynn Bidler of Mount Pulaski, in an article which appears in the Lincoln, Illinois Herald, the February 17, 1885, Mr. Bidler said of that meeting, I was among the thousands who attended the great meeting in Lincoln to hear Douglas. It was a wonder and a surprise to know from whence came the throng, for in those days the prairies were very sparsely settled. The committee and crowd received Douglas with open arms, as it were, a good view of which I obtained from my position in front of Stillman's hardware store. While thus taking a survey of the surroundings, I noticed from 
among a few others, a tall, lean gentleman get off the rear end of the train whom I recognized as Mr. Lincoln, having seen him before. My attention was attracted to him from the fact that while Douglas was received and cheered to the echo, not a human shake of the hand was then and there tendered Mr. Lincoln. In a wandering and gawking manner, he slowly wended his way around the outskirts of the crowd and with a collapsed old-fashioned valise doubled up under his arm, walked toward the hotel. I have wondered but never made inquiry why he was thus neglected, but presume his friends failed to meet him or did not know he was coming. That he had friends is not a question, but just then none appeared. When Lincoln went to the White House, of course, his connection with Logan County in Lincoln, Illinois, was generally severed. During the Civil War, Lincoln, Illinois, was basically loyal to the North. After his election, he stopped on his way once through the town on November 21, 1860. Shortly after the Civil War, Douglas also started. It was during that time when Douglas was trying to rally his Democratic followers to support Lincoln. And on that occasion, he said, fellow citizens, I have no time to make a speech. The cars won't wait. It is not necessary, I believe, for I take it that you are all unit for the nation. I have done my best to preserve peace, but now that war is upon us, the government must be maintained at all hazards. But there was at least one exception to Lincoln's, Illinois' loyalty to the mentor in the White House. For the following item, which I am indebted again to Harry Pratt, appears in the Illinois State Journal, dated October 12, 1863. Copperhead meeting in Lincoln, Illinois, on Saturday, October 12th. Difficulties commence when one sparks Howard. Hurrah for Jeff Davis in Volandingham. A man named Harless went after him with a knife and cut him severely. The crowd knocked Harless down and beat him. Eighty soldiers came down on the train and waited, but no word from Governor Yates. Harless is reported dead, sparks very low. Anyone familiar with the city of Lincoln knows that the largest single influence in its economic life and that of the surrounding Logan County is the Scully Estate. This estate, which is the sole property of T.A. Scully, consists of nearly 30,000 acres in Logan County, causing Logan County to have one of the highest percentages of tenant farm land in this area. The percentage is 78. Scully's father, an Irish landlord, came to Logan County in 1850. He traveled over the land carrying with him a little spade and shovel with which he tested the depth of the topsoil in various locations in the middle central Illinois area. In 51, he purchased the present Logan County holdings in addition to other tracts of land elsewhere in Illinois, some in Nebraska, some in Missouri, and some in Louisiana. The Logan County land has remained intact and has never been in subject to an inheritance tax. Mr. Scully states with conviction, that is the present Mr. Scully, that his father knew Abraham Lincoln well, having met him on several occasions. It's always been interesting to me to speculate what might have transpired in those conversations. What would have been said when this descendant of 500 years of British aristocracy met the homespun lawyer who was nurtured in a log cabin? Now, not because of my own interest entirely, but because it is the first college to bear the name, I wish to touch briefly on the founding of Lincoln College, or Lincoln University as it was first known. Lincoln College was born out of war conditions. The Cumberland Presbyterian Church was one of the smaller branches of Presbyterianism in America, but most of the Cumberlands were located in the southern part of the country and therefore were across the boundary line of the war that was raging during that time. And in those early days, a college was a sort of a rallying point for the ministry of any given Protestant denomination. They'd have a college in a town, and there'd be several ministers on the staff, and it would be sort of headquarters for the congregations in that area. And they had no such college in the Midwestern states. So in 1864, a church commission was formed to visit various communities, some of which already had private academies. And according to legend, the commissioners came to visit Lincoln. 
They were driven out by proprietor Latham in his carriage on a dark winter day in December over the frozen, rutted streets of the town to a knoll in the center of a 10-acre plot of cornland. The day was dark and gloomy. But just as they reached the height of the knoll, the sun burst forth and the day became a blaze of beauty in the western prairie sky. They took this for an omen. They immediately voted unanimously to locate the college in Lincoln and name it Lincoln University. Now that legend, of course, has been told by one of our loyal alumni. How true it is, I don't know. Once having taken the step, however, they proceeded with amazing rapidity. On February 5th, they received a charter from the state of Illinois. That's February 5th, 1865. Lincoln was at the pinnacle of his fame, and any college or school bearing his name was naturally favorably treated by the Republican legislature. The charter of Lincoln University gave complete immunity to taxes and is the most favorable asset of the college today. One week after the charter, Lincoln's last living birthday on February 12th, they broke the ground for a building and a few weeks later laid the cornerstone. The building stone was brought free of charge from Joliet on the Alton and a spacious four-story building was completed by the following year. For an early account of Lincoln University, I refer to a book written in 1878 by a Scotch missionary who called it from Glasgow to Missouri and back. It was written by Fergus Ferguson. On Monday, June 1st, we sallied forth after an early breakfast to visit Lincoln University. Colonel Latham, who accompanied us, went us in high spirits, for he seemed to regard the college with all the pride of a chancellor or a lord rector. As we drew near the building, which was situated about a half mile out of town, we could observe at a glance that it occupied an agreeable and commanding position. As we approached the building in the colonel's carriage at half past eight, we observed the students converging in groups toward their alma mater. There was this peculiarity about the spectacle, which certainly would not have been noticeable at a British college that the young ladies were as numerous as the young gentlemen. They were gathered in a common hall, a high-roofed assembly room in the upper part of the edifice. Later in a Latin class of a Professor Harris, the lesson for the day happened to be rather difficult, one in Caesar's commentaries, and we were quite pleased to observe that the young ladies in the class had at least as good an acquaintance with the structure and syntax of the Latin language as that possessed by the young gentlemen. Without doubt, Lincoln College, with its able staff of professors, occupies a commanding position in the country. And he ends, the young lady element with which he seemed to be somewhat preoccupied is of course quite peculiar and may be regarded by British critics as largely an outgrowth of America's equalizing republicanism. I won't go on with the history of Lincoln College except to say that it continued as a denomination, small denominational institution. It was later the Presbyterians of the Cumberland branch united with the USA in 1901. It became a Presbyterian USA College. And because there are five Presbyterian USA colleges in 1929 being the smallest, it was thought wise to make it a two-year college, which it has been since 1929. Seldom has a community had a more conspicuous patriarch than Colonel Robert Latham was to the town of Lincoln. The present community owes much to his foresight and generosity. He built a house on the northwest corner of one of the Latham blocks. Latham gave 10 acres to the town of Lincoln, and two of these were to be used as parks. One of them was the site of the courthouse, and one of them was the site of the jail. And it's rather unusual in a town this size, that right in the heart of the business district, we have this much open land. In the Latham house, in which Lincoln spent many happy hours, were also visits of the vice presidents, David Davis, Oglesby, Cullum, Weldon, in fact, many of the great men of their time. But the subsequent history of the Latham mansion, however, is one of shabby gentility. After his death, Colonel Robert Latham gave the property to his son, who gradually dissipated his inheritance. It should be noted here that the famous manuscript delivered during the Fremont campaign on sectionalism 
came into the possession of Colonel Robert Latham and was handed on to his son. Will Latham sold this manuscript in 1927 for $18,000 because he needed cash, and I'm told by Dr. Pratt again that it is in the Shride collection in Titusville, Pennsylvania at the present time. He started a tea room in this house because he needed money, and the tea room for some years was a fairly successful project. He had this manuscript photostatted and had it on sale there as a souvenir in the tea room business. But as the tea room in the Depression, the tea room activities declined, it became a gambling house and got rather an unsavory reputation. And the crucial disaster preliminary to its final humiliation and destruction was a raid by the FBI, instigated by the testimony of a neighbor. And after this debacle, the Latham House fell into utter disrepair and was finally destroyed in 1931, and the property sold for its value as real estate. So we can't say in the town of Lincoln, when we pointed to a house, Abraham Lincoln slept here. Maybe it's a blessing. In conclusion, I've asked myself why a community so closely associated with Lincoln's early life should have been relatively indifferent in preserving historical Lincoln memorials, and why only two Lincoln books of any distinction have been written in the 99 years' history of the town. Indeed, it wasn't until September of 1950 that there was even a county historical society. But perhaps it's natural that a small pioneer community, no matter what its past, doesn't completely recognize its value of its history until it reaches a certain maturity in its culture. If 25 years ago, the present level of cultural interest in history had prevailed, I'm sure we would never have lost the Latham House and we never would have lost Postville Courthouse. But perhaps it shows something further too, and that is that bearing the name of Lincoln gives no community, no institution, or no business any proprietary claim on one who belongs to all mankind. Those of you who attended the meeting of the round table sponsored by the Monon Railroad will remember in the pageant Wheels Are Rolling, one of the most impressive scenes was the Lincoln Funeral Train. The song that was sung at the time was called This Train for Glory. And I shall close by reading the account of his last passage through the town of Lincoln and Logan County. The funeral car bearing the body of Mr. Lincoln passed through Logan County on the Chicago and Alton Railroad early in the morning of May 3, 1865. It reached Atlanta at 6 o'clock. Minute guns, fife, and muffled drum greeted the train just as the sun rose in splendor over the prairie. A large number of people had assembled, and portraits of Lincoln with emblems of mourning were everywhere visible. The train reached Lincoln about 7 o'clock a.m. A dispatch from Lincoln to the Chicago Tribune of that date reads as follows. This town was named for Abraham Lincoln by some personal friends before he was known to fame. The depot was appropriately draped in mourning, and ladies dressed in white, trimmed with black, sang a requiem as the train passed under a handsomely constructed arch, on each column of which was a portrait of the deceased president. The arch bore the motto, with malice to none, with charity for all. The national colors were prominently displayed, and a profusion of evergreens with black and white drapings completed the artistic decorations. As the train proceeded on through the county, at Elkhart, a beautiful arch spanned the track, ornamented with evergreens and national flags, all draped in mourning. The arch was surmounted by a cross formed of evergreens and bearing this motto, Ours the cross, thine the crown. Thank you. You want to invite him up here? Watch what you say, because Ralph is about to record you. All right, well, this is a like-minded matter, but uh, regularly I meet some business or commercial establishment or product that carries the Lincoln name. 
And I, I think it would be amusing. It wouldn't be important at all, but it would be amusing uh, to uh, see a collection of these establishments and products that have been named after Lincoln. Uh, riding uh, over Minnesota, I notice Old Abe Cole is C-O-A-L. Uh, Old Abe Cole is sold. That was a new one on me. Though I'm now told about a... Uh, Ralph tells of a... Uh, Good man over in uh, Gary who has named his coal yard after Lincoln. And I suppose there are a thousand hotels in the country. And uh, I don't mean anyone should go to work uh, at it earnestly, but just uh, in the spirit of uh, curiosity. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised with what there were various blue sky uh, operations conducted under the name of Lincoln. I know one time I got added impetus in working on Lincoln material out of the most prominent political corruptionist in Cook County, city of Chicago, state of Illinois. He was the organizer and the promoter of the Lincoln League. And I think that a list of the establishments and products named after Lincoln would be very interesting. Uh, going through telephone books now, you'll find in Chicago and New York, atomic laundries, atomic dyers and cleaners <laughs> i'm looking for an atomic cigar <laughs> no it's good to see faces here tonight that i haven't seen in some time i get reports regularly about uh, you meeting around this common theme of that war back there that has sunk a little deeper into the hearts of the uh, people of the country than either of the world wars and uh that was a trial, of course. It isn't stated often enough that the dead and wounded out of that contest in our own country ran higher than the mortality in either of the world wars. A neighbor of ours, Mrs. and I were at dinner there. They thought I was pulling a fast one when I pointed to a statement by Harold Stassen in an article in the Ladies' Home Journal that the Russian dead in the Battle of Stalingrad Three hundred and sixty-one thousand, and our own dead out of the entire war was three hundred and forty-one thousand, twenty thousand less than the Russians lost in a single battle. Our hostess thought I was working some kind of propaganda, and that I was maybe a little un-American. You got to be careful where you get your statistics now. Don't trust Harold Stassen. <laughs> Though Harold pulled a good one up at the Duluth Chamber of Commerce the other day, he told about a preacher. It's the first time I saw any slightest flicker of humor in Stassen. <laughs> he told about a preacher who uh, told his congregation one Sunday that on the next Sunday he would tell the congregation why the lady fell out of the bed. And there was a lot of talk about that across the week, and there were two or three hundred people who hadn't been to the church for quite a while, some who had never been there. And the preacher explained why the lady fell out of the bed. She got too near the edge of the bed. 